Well, it turns out there are many things that we don't know quite as well as we think that we do. One of the most popular comedy TV shows in the United Kingdom uh, is a show called QI, quite interesting. And uh, this show is popular because it takes panelists, lines them up, and gives them interesting facts for them to discuss. And people get a good laugh out of it. Facts like this. I don't know if you knew this, but the fastest lawnmower in the world goes 116 miles per hour. I don't know if you knew that. That's, my son Noah would just have a blast on that thing, I'm sure. I don't know if you knew that lions can get hairballs as big as soccer balls. And I like, genuinely want to see that. Like, I don't know if it interests you like it interests me. And then this one's my favorite. 5% of cats are allergic to humans. Which means I knew that it wasn't always my fault that me and cats never get along, okay? Part of the show, though it's dedicated to a segment called General Ignorance, where they put facts out there that are commonly assumed to be facts that are really untrue. So you learn from this uh, that it is, uh, you may not know this, but you do not have as many nostrils as you thought you do. You do not have two, you have four nostrils. I had no idea until I read that. Many of you well, oh, I knew that all along. Sure you did, okay? Mount Everest, it turns out, is not the tallest mountain in the world. It's the highest, but it's not the tallest. Figure that out. King Henry VIII did not have, as it turns out, six wives, which is actually kind of complicated. Um, and the earth, it turns out, does not have just one moon. There are all sorts of other non-man-made things floating around that are considered technically to count as moons. And I didn't know that either. It seems that there are all kinds of things. It's actually a book with thousands, literally the whole book. I, I got a hold of this this week. It's just thousands of facts that will surprise you that you just didn't know were true. And I found all of these fascinating. So it seems that we know a good deal less than we think that we know about certain things. It's a very humbling book to read through. But this isn't just about mountains and moons and kings and nostrils, right? But about more important things like what we're going to discuss today, a biblical view of singleness, now, that's an interesting thing to talk through, I think, for a lot of reasons. Uh, we're in a section through 1 Corinthians uh, where we're looking at three areas that Paul really gives us some theological insight to, sex, marriage, and singleness. So today is the conclusion of that, three, that third part, the singleness part. We're going to talk through what does the Bible have to say about this? And, and there's a little bit of concern because we think we know what singleness is all about. And yet, when you survey the church or you look at how singleness is spoken of in the church, it is not everything that we think that it is. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue on. If you're new here, uh, we are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for the year. And so we're slowly walking through 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 7, closing up chapter 7, discussing what the Bible has to say about singleness. And so last week, we set the stage for this in a way that really gave us an understanding of what Paul has to say about all three of these areas, whether sex or marriage or singleness. The Apostle Paul gives us a really good summary statement, a way to go about thinking about this and a way to go about living in, when, in regards to all three of these areas. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. If you remember last week, it says this, Nevertheless, what he means is, whether we're talking about the sexual relationship, the marriage, sex in general, marriage, uh, which sex is reserved for in marriage or singleness, wherever you find yourself, here's what he says. This is the rule for living. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. So whatever, wherever you find yourself, you make decisions based on what Jesus would want you to do. So just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And this really is the most important question to ask. 
So when we try to understand what the world is telling us about sex or what the Bible tells us about sex, that it's reserved for one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. And what we learned about that was that it is always about giving and not taking. It is always about serving and not being served. And in the marriage relationship, like we learned last, last week, when you're married, it is always about your marriage is centered on Christ and the goal is to outserve one another. I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. I'm going to make much of Jesus by the way that I treat you and interact with you in the marriage relationship. Or the way we talk about singleness, the Apostle Paul says in all three of these areas of life, the most important thing for you to do is to consider as a follower of Jesus, someone who's given my life to Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. How do I live in this circumstance, situation, or season? What? words should I use? How should I describe things? How should I behave? What tone should I use? How should I treat people? All of these things in whatever situation you find yourself in are the most important thing when it comes to following, following Jesus is what would I do? If, if he were me, what would he do? So we gave that Dallas Willard quote. I didn't put it on the screen, so it's on the screen this week. He summarized it well. He said, discipleship, following Jesus, is about becoming who Jesus would be if he were you, right? So if, if he's in your situation, what is he doing? How do we become more like him in every situation? Live as a believer in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what it is. Let me illustrate for you this way. This is a picture of a man named Al Marchand, 21-year veteran of the NYPD. After serving for 21 years, he retired uh, from the NYPD and found himself really restless, not knowing what to do with all of this extra time. And so he became a flight attendant. And he told his wife, I want to become a flight attendant so if I'm ever on a plane that's going down, I want to share Jesus with as many people as I possibly can while that flight's going down. I want to take advantage of that situation to the best of my ability. Well, on September 11, 2001, he was serving on flight 175, one of the flights that flew right into the World Trade Center. And we don't know. We don't know what he did. We don't know if he was able to uh, share Jesus with as many people as he could, but we do know this. At his funeral, his wife shared his story. And as a result of him living like a Christian in whatever situation he found himself in, that deep desire that he had to make much of Jesus, 100 people became Christians. Live as a believer in whatever situation you find yourself in. And the Apostle Paul is going to give us another situation here of living in a season, whether short or long, as a single person. And so it's important for us to know because it's important for us who are married I haven't been single in 15 years, so this was not the easiest thing to write, right? Because it's like, how do you fully relate to that uh, with where I'm at? But at the same time, it's so applicable to everybody in the room because every one of us have friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors that are in that season. And how is it that we should think about this? And the Apostle Paul gives us a way to do that. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 and then immediately jump down to verse 25. So bear with me. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. If not, it'll be on the screens. Paul says these words as he continues teaching. I wish that all of you were as I am, meaning single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say this. It is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis... I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, 
you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who are buying something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in this present form is passing away. Let me summarize this. Verses 27 and 28 really help in summarizing what Paul's getting at in this passage we just read. He essentially says, are you married? That's great. It's a great way to live. Stay that way. Are you single? Hey, that's a great way for you to live. Stay that way. Whether you're married, that's a, marriage is not going to be easy, he says. It's not going to be an easy thing to do. Uh, there's all kinds of things that come with marriage in that relationship. But if you find yourself married, it's perfectly okay. It's not sinful. It's a good thing. Stay married and live as a Christian in your marriage. If you're single, don't rush to get married. Don't get caught up thinking that marriage is the ultimate fulfillment for your life because it's not. He says the point is don't rush to get to another season of life. Be present where the Lord has you for this particular time and in this particular place. Now, this is really a startling statement in this day and time. This would have blown people away because in Corinth and really in the world today, this would have been unreal to think about singleness this way. In their culture, it's really hard for us as individualistic people living in an individualistic society for us to picture that back in Corinth in those days, they didn't have individualistic achievement, honor, or success. You didn't get accolades and awards as an individual. Nobody achieved the top rung of success as an individual person in that culture. In that culture, you had to have a family for that. No individuals got accolades and success and achievements, but families did. Your family's name is what was given accolades. Your family's name is what was given success. Your family is what achieved uh, different things in that culture. So, therefore, in order for you to be successful and to do much, you had to be married and you had to have children, or you were nobody. You had no security, no significance at all if you weren't married and you, if you didn't have a family. No single adults were uh, around in that culture unless they were prostitutes. And yet, here comes Christianity. Here comes the writings of the Apostle Paul. And I think you can make an argument that this is one of the most drastic statements about singleness and marriage that had ever been said up until this time in 1 Corinthians 7. Here he comes, the first religious, philosophical, worldview thought that has ever come along that had an idea of singleness that was different from what the culture was saying, mainly saying that if you're single, it's okay. It's okay to be single. You can still have your value and your worth. Now, in our day, it's hard for us to hear that too. Why? Because if you're single and you're in the church, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to do any of that. But, but you can just answer this silently to yourself. Have you not felt the pressure to get married? Have you not been steered in that direction? Have you not been fully encouraged to, hey, if you're not married, you're not significant. You haven't arrived yet. Life hasn't really started for you yet. And yet, here's the Apostle Paul's word saying, no, if you're single, that's not the case. If you're single, it's a perfectly good way for you to live on mission for the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul says, I would prefer if you even stayed single, which is another shocking statement. And he gives us a little bit of a reason why in verses 32 to 38. Look at how he describes this. Here's why he would prefer if someone was single. Now, single meaning you haven't married yet. That's why he uses the term virgin. He's assuming that if you haven't married, you haven't had sex. Because that's reserved for the marriage relationship. So he says, if you just haven't met somebody yet and you're single now, then stay single. Maybe somebody recently went through a a, a divorce and they find themselves single. Or you're a widow and you lost your loved one sooner than you ever wanted to. And you find yourself 
in a season where you're single again. He says, if you're in that season, you can take advantage of that particular season and it can be viewed as a gift and not a curse. And he says, I would prefer if you took advantage of it. And here's why. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels that he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled this matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion from or under control, or is under control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does even better. We saw last week both marriage and singleness. The Bible is very clear. It calls them gifts. And anytime the Bible talks about a spiritual gift, it can talk about two different things within that spiritual gift. It's not a lifelong assignment in every situation. We've made that assumption. We thought we knew, but maybe what the Bible says goes against that. Gifts can come for seasons. Gifts can come for a particular set period of time where God has a particular assignment that he wants you to do. So he gives you the giftedness for you to carry it out. The other thing about spiritual gifts is to, make, to understand is this. A spiritual gift is for you to be able to go and do something that requires you to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to accomplish it. You can't do it in your own strength. You're dependent upon God to help you do what he's calling you to do with that gift. And the third thing I would tell you is this. Spiritual gifts are always for the purpose of serving other people and advancing the kingdom. They are not a selfish way for you to make yourself a better version of you. They never are anywhere in the Bible. You don't get a spiritual gift because you can be your be- live your best life now. And like, oh, you should really develop that gift, and it's all about you. That is the wrong way to view a biblical, a, the biblical view of a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is always for the purpose of serving other people. So the Apostle Paul says here, when it comes to being single, that's a gift too. And you might be thinking, man, I can see how marriage is a gift. I really can't. But I can't see how singleness is a gift. Well, look at what Paul said here, 33 and 34. He says, the married man, he's anxious about, and he's worried about worldly things, mainly keeping his wife happy and his interests are then divided and and the wife who's married she too has her interests divided i want to serve the lord with everything that i can but i also have this responsibility to my marriage now as well yes you can serve the lord within your marriage but it does restrict you from doing certain things it just it, that's the way it's the way it works let me explain it to you this way when i got married i'll tell you my wife is absolutely is apart from salvation in christ the, the greatest gift i've ever received She's unbelievable. And I don't say that just to, for shock effect. For, I just tell you the truth. She absolutely is a gift. However, when I got married to her, my interests were divided. They had to be from that day forward. So everything I thought my life was going to be about, I met her, I get married. Now my life, it's divided. So I, I started this vision for my life, but now I've got this responsibility God's given me. I got to take care of her provide for her. Now my interests are divided with, with all kinds of things. An example for money. Let me give you this example. Before I got married, for me to move from one place to another, it took my Jeep two tubs and 20 minutes. I could move anywhere, right? And many of you are like, yeah, I remember those days. Now, if I want to move from the house we live in now, it would take a full-size SUV to hold the Legos that are in our house, (laughs) let alone moving anything else, okay? 
Like your interests get divided. Different things require your responsibility. New responsibilities with my time. I went on a mission trip a few years back to visit one of our missionaries in India, uh, the Morris family, and I was able to go with them, and I got to teach a class at the Bible college and go to different villages. It was really a phenomenal trip. I loved every minute of it. It was such a good trip. I was gone for 15 days. My wife had two little kids back here at home. I got back, and one of the first things I realized was I could never do that again, not to her. But man, would I love to. I'd love to go on mission trips and be able to teach and go do these other things, but your interests are divided, right? I have a family now. I don't get to go and do that. Why? Because I've got basketball practice to drop kids off at. I've got homework to help with and our nighttime routine to go through. They need me there. My interests, in a sense, are divided. Now, if you, if you pinned me down, what would I really rather do? I'd rather be with my wife and kids every single time. So my interests aren't quite as divided as I'm saying here necessarily. But man, if you wanted to go on a mission trip, I can't. Because I have these responsibilities at home. One preacher said it this way. I love it. He said, when you get married, and particularly when you have children, whatever pockets of margin you have just disappear into the black hole of obligation. (laughs) Amen, right? The Apostle Paul says here, though, singleness, as opposed to that divided obligation, when you're single, for whatever reason and for however long, you have the opportunity to serve the Lord with an undivided attention. Wherever he calls you, whatever he needs you to do, you are free to go and do it. The problem, though, is that we don't see it that way. The problem is so many people don't see it as a gift but a curse. Why? Because we've been told that while single, we might be able to serve the Lord with undivided attention, but our life won't be fulfilled until we're married. That's what we're told to see. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, The giftness of being single for the Apostle Paul lay in the freedom it gave him to concentrate on ministry in ways that a married man could not. Paul may very well then have experienced what we today would call an emotional struggle with singleness. He might have wanted to be married, but he not only found an ability to live a life of service to God and others in that particular situation, he discovered and capitalized on the unique features of the single life, such as time flexibility to minister with great effectiveness. He says you're able to have an incredible effect on people When you're free in that particular capacity, it's one way the Apostle Paul describes for us that that is a gift, and it shifts the way we begin to think about things. Wait a second, if this is a gift, and I'm seeing single people, and I'm interacting with them, the goal is not to get them hooked up with somebody to be married and to to actually have a fulfilled life, but the goal is to see where's the Lord calling you right now in this particular season that he has you, and what does he want you to do within the singleness that you find yourself experiencing right now? Look, if a marriage... Is supposed to show off, this is important, if a marriage is supposed to show off Christ's love and devotion to the church through showing the love and devotion that a husband and a wife have for one another, then I think singleness is, the purpose of singleness then, in a unique way, is to highlight the devotion that we have to Christ. So marriage shows the devotion that he has to us in that marriage relationship. But singleness then shows us, shows the devotion that we can have to him. It's, it's like the complete and full picture. So the single calling then, it's extremely important to us. We have to actually view it a di- little bit different than we've seen it before. Singleness, like marriage, it bears a meaningful imprint from God. Marriage highlights what is not yet true in our relationship with the Lord. And here's what it is. What's not yet true in our relationship with the Lord is it's not been consummated. We haven't been face-to-face with Jesus yet, right? But marriage shows that when we're face-to-face with him, it's going to be an incredible picture. And marriage gives a kind of a preview of that singleness, it shows what already is true in our relationship with Christ, mainly our devotion and dependence upon him. 
Our devotion to him and our depends upon him is what we get to display to the world when we are single. So I want to do a couple things here. Singleness points to Jesus as much as marriage does, but there are some myths about singleness that need to be corrected a little bit. And so there's three in particular that I want to walk through that maybe will help us, that this passage helps correct just a little bit. Three myths that I've seen uh, that I want to point out here. The first is this, that singleness is just a season. Have you ever heard somebody say, he's such a great guy, how's he still single? Or man, she is such a great catch, when is she going to get married? Anybody ever heard that? I mean, I've heard it all the time. The implication behind that, though, is that great men and women get married and the not-so-great men and women don't. And so a single person then imprints upon their soul an identity that's false. Here's what it would tell them, mainly that they're defective, second-rate, somehow less than others who marry. But Paul's message, 1 Corinthians 7, is the opposite is true. Paul's message here is that single Christians are not defined by their singleness. Being single is not your identity, is what Paul is saying. Being single is not your identity. Your identity is your connection to Jesus Christ. The relationship that you share with Jesus is what forms your identity, not the status of your life as far as single or married. That is not who you are as a definition, which means that whether singleness is a temporary gift, meaning you're single just for a little while, maybe you're finishing school and you start your career and you're single and the Lord wants you to have a dynamic impact wherever you're at, at your college campus or in your career, and then you get married and it looks very typical like the American dream, that's fine. It could be a temporary singleness or it could be a much longer one where you're single for the duration of your life. Whatever it is, the point is not how long are you single, how long are you in this, that's not the point. The point is not whether you're single or how long you're single. The point is not whether you're married or how long you're married, meaning if you get widowed before you ever dreamed of being widowed. You walk through a situation you never dreamed you'd have to walk through, and all of a sudden you're single again. That's not the point because that's not who you are. The Apostle Paul says you are first and foremost a follower of Jesus Christ, which means whatever situation you find yourself in. How do I live like Christ in this particular situation? I'm single. Don't know how long that gift is going to be given to me, but I'm going to take full advantage of it for his mission and his glory and the service and benefit of other people. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell them here. So the season is not what's important. It's what is God calling you to do in that season that is important. The second myth is this. Singleness requires a special gift. Now we're enamored with superheroes and superpowers. There's like 39 Marvel movies, isn't there? Like it's crazy. And, and everyone beats the record of the one before because it makes more money. And you're just like, my son yesterday had his ninth birthday party. Had all his friends over. He had a Spider-Man cake. Everyone had a sword. And we got out of there without an insurance claim, but it was close because they were swinging things, dressed up, diving on the trampoline. Like it was like, what is going to happen here? Let's keep the chaos under control. They love superheroes and they're all about superheroes. And so are we. And what, what we do then is we view singleness as though it's some sort of superpower that God gives to certain people, but not to everybody. Why? Because when anything is wrong, we think if we could have a superpower, if somehow there was a power that we could have to endure what we have to go through. Here's the problem with that, though. That's not a good thing. The, most, the, the worst part about that, though, is that if we view singleness as though somehow it's something we have to endure, it flies in the face of the goodness that Paul says that singleness is. He says intrinsically, naturally, singleness is a gift. It's a good thing. So when we say something that's good requires a superpower to get through or a special giftedness for me to endure. It's not so good to begin with then, is it? The Apostle Paul says you can't view it that way. 
Singleness can't be viewed as something that requires some sort of a special gift. It's much more than that. And single people in the church have had to endure this for a long time because we look at them and we're like, man, you must have a gift that most of us don't have. You've got the ability to get through it like nobody else can. That's hard. How are you getting through that? Like, man, I don't know how you did that. And they're just like, are you kidding? Like, what am I, second rate? And they begin to take that identity onto themselves, thinking I'm just not worthy or I must, something, something must be wrong with me or God must have, or they say that's not the gift and God got it wrong and they walk away. Instead, the church could come and say, you know what? It's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. Man, how exciting is it that you can go anywhere and do anything for the Lord Jesus in this season of your life? What if our conversations look more like that? I'm less like, man, how are you getting through this? I can't even believe it. See, the difference it makes in the way that you view certain things, and the Apostle Paul says this is a gift. Essentially, the problem with viewing singleness as though it requires a special gift to get through is that we make an idol out of marriage. We say, you're not fulfilled until you're married. And now all of a sudden, marriage is the God that we're worshiping. The Apostle Paul says, no, single or married, that's not the point. The point is, you've been given a gift, steward it well through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in your life. The third one is this, singleness then means that there's no intimacy or family, and that's a myth. You say, but as a single person, I don't want to be alone. And say, I totally actually want to highlight that point because you're not supposed to be alone. It's just that marriage is not the only way that God helps us not be alone. That's not the only way that God does that. Maybe you've heard this phrase multiple times in your time with, as a Christian or you've been in the church where you say, all you need is God. God's all you need. And I'm probably guilty of having said that myself. The problem is God doesn't even say that. God doesn't say that. When God was in the, in the garden with Adam and Eve, he said it is not good that they should be alone. He didn't look at Adam and say, hey, Adam, you got me? You need nothing else. No, he said, I made you to need companionship. I made you to, to need the, the relationships with other human beings. That's the way that God created us. He created us for, with a need for intimacy and companionship with other people. And marriage is not the only way that he fulfills that. Uh, one author said it this way, anyone can live without sex, but no one can live without intimacy. Intimacy is a fascinating word. It's, it comes from the Latin word intimus, which means inmost. It's a deep sense of belonging and love. That's what it means. And that deep sense of belonging and love that we get to experience, it comes from transparency and dialogue with one another and sharing life with one another. The problem is our culture's hijacked that word altogether, hasn't it? Anytime you hear the word intimacy, you immediately think of sex now because of the way our world has taken a word that has a really good understanding that, that is a good thing and it's sexualized it completely. It's so weird for us to hear intimacy and friendship. And yet the Bible is full of examples and teaching that we will experience intimacy in our friendships with one another. The Bible's clear about it. It's so weird. If I were to stand up here and tell you that my closest friend, his name is Andrew, and we have a very intimate friendship, you'd immediately feel weird about that. Like, wait, what? Because of what the culture's done to the word. And yet, we have an intimate friendship because he knows more about me. Other than my wife, he knows more, more about me than any other person in the world. And that's come from confessing sin, walking through tragedy, being there for one another, encouraging one another, being consistent in one another's life. And so we have this friendship, this brotherhood that has fulfilled my need for companionship as well. My marriage does more than any other relationship that I have. But this friendship does as well. And the Bible is teaching us that marriage is not the only... This is why the, the church in the Bible is called a family. 
It's called a family. One of Paul's favorite ways to describe the church is the household of God. He'll say it all the time, the household of God. And you'll see, he'll use language when he's talking to other Christians. And you've used this language with other people in your life too in the church where you've said brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll use that language all the time. You understand that that's not a light thing that we're saying. There's theological depth to those words. What we're not saying, we're not doing, it's not a PR move to make the church look more friendly. Come on in, we're all brothers and sisters, right? That's not the point. There's actually a connection that takes place in Christ between us because of this. The Apostle Paul says, this is a way for God to fulfill that need for companionship, the church. There should never be a lonely single person in the church. And shame on us when there is. Everybody in the church should feel intimately connected as a brother or a sister in Christ. That is the purpose. This is why New Hope has said for many, many years, one of the number one feedback we get when people come to New Hope is it feels like family. It feels like I can be known. And that's the point. May we never lose that, church, where everybody feels like they can be intimately known. Why? Because then we'll stop idolizing marriage. And we'll stop saying it's the only way for you to be fulfilled. And we'll tell people that in certain seasons of life, really all you need is an intimate connection to Jesus. And he's going to lead you on his mission. So the next time that, you're sing- that you find yourself, that it, it, you're found out as someone who's single in the church, or you find yourself talking to or, or even doing ministry to somebody who's single, would you please do me a favor? Would you commit to saying that singleness has nothing to do with your identity as a person? Your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. Single people are children of God. They are loved by God. They have purpose and meaning and value right here and right now, and they don't need to get married to get to that place. God wants to use them in the right here and the right now. So Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 then, when it comes to sex and marriage and singleness, here's his point. Whatever you find yourself experiencing, you need Jesus. Connect with Jesus, and he's going to help lead you in every one of these different areas of your life. You want the most meaningful experience in the marriage relationship sexually? You need Jesus. You want the most meaningful purpose for your life if you find yourself single, you need to take a hold of Jesus. That's the key to getting everything. Let me finish this way. Years ago, there was a a man who was extremely wealthy. And in his wealth, he had a deep desire and a a love for artwork. And so he uh, wanted his son, naturally, his only child, to have this deep love for artwork as well. That was one of his deepest desires. I want my kid to love art the way that I love art. And so together they would take these trips and they'd go all around the world and they would buy multi-million dollar pieces of artwork, Monet and Van Gogh, Picasso. They would buy originals and they collected these in, in the home and they would hang them around the home because of their shared love for art. And then World War II happened. And this man sent his son. His son had to go off to war to fight for his country. And the father was left back wondering and hoping and anxiously waiting to make sure that his son would come home from war. And then he got the telegram that his only son was killed in action. Well, he was really sad and upset. Christmas time rolled around and just didn't feel the same. The paintings were just a reminder to him that his son wasn't coming home that year. Christmas morning, there's a knock at the door. He goes and answers the door and there's a young man uh, as he opens the door standing there in military attire holding a big package in his hand. And the man looks a little confused, and the, and the, military, the soldier says, Sir, I'm sorry to disturb you on Christmas. It's just that I'm, I'm the guy that your son saved when he was killed. And I've got this gift for you, and I really want to give it to you. And he says, Come in, come in. And he gets all excited, and they come in, and they, they sit around the dinner table. 
And they begin to talk and share stories. And somewhere in their conversation, the young man says, Sir, I just, I just want you to know that your son talked about the love of art that he had because of you all the time. He talked about your trips and the artwork that you guys collected, and it meant so much to him. And I'm an artist, and so I, I painted a picture that I wanted you to have. And so he rips the paper off the front, and he looks at this picture frame. As he opens it up, he sees a portrait of his only son in striking detail. He looks at this picture, and he's blown away. Now, it wasn't a masterpiece. It wasn't going to hang in a museum or a gallery. No one was going to pay a lot for it, but man, did he love it. And so he took off all the million-dollar pieces of art in his entire house, and he hung up that one picture of his son. When he hung up that one picture of his son, he wanted everyone that came into his house to know that that is the most important thing. His son meant more to him than anything else in the world. Well, the years went by, and ultimately the father dies. And an auction was to take place to auction off all of the artwork in his estate. And so people sent from museums and galleries from all over the world, they sent all, all these people to represent them to bid millions upon millions of dollars to get an original Van Gogh or Monet, one of them in their own collection. And so they're there for this auction. And the auction's getting ready to start. The auctioneer stands up, says, we're going to begin the auction. And he pulls up the first picture and he puts it up on the easel and he says, would anybody like to bid? And it was the picture of the portrait of the son. People began to scoff. One guy started laughing. And finally, someone said, come on. We came from all over the world, and we want to bid millions of dollars on original pieces of art, and you're going to start out with this thing? Can we just get this over with? But the auctioneer waited patiently. He just waited, and everything was quiet, awkwardly quiet. Finally, a voice in the back said, I'll take it. And as this man stepped forward, everybody was thrown off even more because he was wearing uh, torn-up jeans and a dirty T-shirt. He clearly did not fit in with the crowd that was bidding millions of dollars. And he said, hey, I, I don't have any money to offer you for the picture. I'm the groundskeeper here at the family estate. And I knew the father and I knew his boy. I knew him well. And I promise you I'll take really good care of that picture. The auctioneer lifts the gavel and he brings it down. He says, sold to the man in the back of the room. And then finally everybody's like, finally we can get on with this thing. Well, the auctioneer smiles. He lifts up the gavel and he drops it again. And he says, that'll conclude the auction today. Stunned silence filled the room. Everybody getting frustrated. Finally, somebody says, are you kidding me? There's millions and millions of dollars worth of precious artwork here that we're getting ready to bid on, and you're telling us the auction is over? What's going on? And he smiles and steps back. He says, well, according to the will of the Father, whoever took the Son gets it all. That's 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Whoever takes the Son gets all the fulfillment and meaning in life that they ever need. Whatever situation you find yourself in, cling to Jesus. And he'll offer you more meaning in your sex life, in your marriage, as a single person than you could ever need. Whoever takes the sun gets everything else. Because living like a Christian in whatever situation means we cling to Jesus. Let's pray.